Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, today we'll continue with Romans chapter 5 and not cover the whole chapter, but I think if we cover the problem of original sin, that it's not here. But in a sense, much of what is written, and there's probably been more bad things written about Romans chapter 5 than any book in the Bible. And of course, what they're trying to do is clear up a problem that we really don't have. A lot of what has been written on Romans 5 is flowing out of the mistranslation that you get in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, which actually, I think, obscures or, or maybe even makes impossible the meaning of the Greek. And so we get the Augustinian doctrine of original sin, which will flow into the notion of total depravity, and out of that then we get the whole misunderstanding of not just sin, but of salvation. And so what became the standard reading of the verse in Western theology in the late third century has to to do then with in whom Adam or in whom all sin, that is, it's referencing Adam. And this is simply not correct. The idea here is conveyed of original guilt. The idea that in some sense all people sinned, or and that's what the argument is going to be made that in spite of the fact that just a few verses later, Paul will say just the opposite of that. And so there is a profound obscurity that's placed upon this. One might even say a kind of, you have to read through a kind of contradiction that gives us the notion that everyone is born already damnably guilty, you know, in the eyes of God. How this guilt, you know, the meaning of this guilt, whether it's total depravity, how it's passed on, is a bit of a mystery. We'll talk about this. And, of course, that's the problem, as Paul is in this chapter explaining how it is that we get this problem. And so by misunderstanding what happened in Adam, there is an obscuring of what our problem is and what the solution might be. The notion, first of all, of guilt in the eyes of God is not the problem, but that will become the focus in some way if you're going to get everybody sinning in Adam, the way in which they will have sinned is that it's their nature genetically, that it's passed on, maybe sexually, it's not quite clear, maybe by divine fiat that people are just declared, everybody's declared guilty without reason. Calvin, he wavers between these two things. An Augustinian picture, it may be connected to sex or a sexual transmission. None of this is necessary if we can clear up this verse. And so, in a sense, chapter 5 is just a continuation of the thought that we've already got. If we say that all have sinned in Adam, then, and, and we don't say, well, the problem has to do not with guilt, but with the result of death in that sin, then the ransom that is paid, you know. And even though Paul's not using ransom language here on chapter 5, Christ frees us from death, I think that becomes clear here in chapter 5, because the way he frees us from death is through resurrection. That is, the counter to death is resurrection. The counter 
is life. The movement of the first atom is undone in the second atom. And so the text should read, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man, and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. And the, the focus here, then, is the priority is given to the reign of death and through death sin. So clearly we're not simply talking about death as simply the end of you know, a mortality or, or the second law of thermodynamics or some simple sense in which maybe, you know, the, the, the universe, I think the universe, the death or entropy is, is part of the human creation and part of creation itself. But what is meant by death then is being linked to sin. So sin and death will come together. But death is given priority here. That is that they're going to sin because of the reign of death. And so it's not an, an inherited condition in the sense that Augustine and, and Calvin will put it. You know, we can explain it, and we're going to explain it. Genesis will explain it as the, the passing on that uh, the, the image of Adam is obscured, and then the image of Seth is, is in the image of Adam rather than in the image of God. And so from this and from what Paul is saying, that we're all in the image of Adam, not because genetically or that in some way we bear his guilt, but because of the sense in which there is an orientation to death that arises that is sin. And so not all have sinned, or not all have sinned in the way of Adam, Paul will say. And Augustine, he's going to talk about sin as a completely impenetrable to the understanding. And this is quite unfortunate, and he's taking this from five. He's saying, well, this is beyond our understanding, and Paul is giving us a access to this understanding. He's going to read 5.12 in the all sin, that in some way there's total depravity, but how is this propagated, or how do all participate in Adam's original act? He will talk about it. It's a mystery. It's below the level of understanding. And the result is not just that sin is not subject to explanation, but then, unfortunately, because the doctrine of salvation flows out of this understanding, this obscure understanding of sin, then salvation itself becomes obscured. And so there is tulip that is going to come from this. And, it, and instead of deliverance, you know, lutron is uh, the idea of a ransom being paid and deliverance from sin and death, that the ransom is paid to God or a price is paid to God and that it's freedom from God that is sought. The way that G.C. You know, Burkhauer put this, the, the riddle of sin can never permit a greater or deeper insight. What is the origin of sin? How it's propagated? Well, unfortunately, it's right here that Paul tells us. Maybe if we state this situation most darkly, we have a nonsense translation in the Latin Vulgate that David Bentley Hart points out that the Greek church did not go down this dark path because they could read Greek, and apparently Augustine and others, or especially Augustine, did not have access to the Greek text or did not understand Greek. And so his nonsensical notion here gives rise to a nonsensical and mysterious notion of salvation. None of this, you know, the idea of God being the one from 
whom we are delivered, that guilt being the problem, the death of Christ being something that is given to God, a payment, that is just simply absent in the New Testament. And eventually with uh, John Calvin, the total depravity, as he means it, means that even when you're doing good, that there is no good in humankind, and even acts of apparent goodness are not really good, that God still sees you and what you're doing is evil. You can't possibly do anything, and so this is unconditional election, that you know, God's sovereignty is emphasized here throughout, and that human free will, because of original sin, is an impossibility, and so choosing the right here, choosing is not really a possibility. And then who God chooses is limited, and that's precisely what Paul is not saying. In fact, Romans 5 is a, a passage that, if anything, you're going to have to explain why everyone is not saved. I'm not saying you can't do that, but you can't do that in Romans 5 because he's talking about universal salvation. All sin or all uh, are under the darkness of death and, and Adam, and so to the same all, it's a corresponding relationship. And so universality, maybe if you don't hold to universal salvation, that all are saved, but universality is clearly a teaching of the New Testament that it has to do with the cosmos and all that's in the cosmos. And then, of course, the whole irresistible grace, well, that's connected here to predestination, you know, the whole idea that, again, a mistranslation in the, in the Latin part runs us down, you know, in uh, the, the picture here, verse 12. If we look at 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, and then whereupon all sinned, and I'm reading from Hart's translation, and what he's doing is avoiding the sense here that death spread to all because all sinned. In verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam even though over those who did not commit sin. It, it just evacuates the meaning of what Paul is doing, contradicting contradict here by verse 14. The universal reign of death applies to those who have not sinned and to those who have sinned. You know, there's obvious categories of people who have not sinned in the manner that of Adam or in the way that Paul is talking about. I think that children and many others are innocent. So the idea is that just as sin entered into the cosmos and introduced death, so the contagion of death spread into the whole of humanity and introduced sin into all its members. I'm quoting here from Hart's footnote in his translation. And what he's doing in the footnote is, I think, giving priority to the nature of the enslavement. In, in Adam's sin introduced death, and then all died in Adam. That's clearly the case, that death is the universal problem. This is what makes the gospel such good news, is because we all share the same problem. It's not a problem in the mind of God alone. It's a problem that we can see in the human condition. Sin and death, then, are integral to one another, but where sin preceded death in Adam, and after Adam, it's death, and this is, I think, the sense that 
you know, there's a failure, there's a fallenness. And what we will talk about is an orientation to death that Paul will lay out. He's about to do that and explain this in more detail in 6, 7, and 8, that he's going to give us a picture exactly of how this thing functions. But if we miss chapter 5, or if we, in, in a sense, if we complicate things here in chapter 5, then we're going to, to miss 6, 7, and 8. And then once we get this straight, that in Christ, the hold of sin is undone, as life is introduced, this is the way that chapter 4 ends, you know, if we get the idea that at the end of chapter 4, it's simply a balance that death and resurrection then are balanced out in Christ. So death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those who did not sin. And so the idea here is Hart puts it, Paul speaks of death and sin as a kind of contagion, a disease. He's going to describe that disease in metaphor or language that is not immediately accessible to us, and that is using the language of civil law, he's using the language of slavery. And so, too, then when he talks about redemption or, you know, the manumission or freedom, he's not talking about from an inherited condition of, of having committed a crime, the problem, you know, of being subject to a harsh slave master, sin and death, not God, that if you put God in the place of sin and death, then you've got indeed a perverse gospel. And so the reversal of the condition, resurrection, gets at, What's resolved? There's no mystery here. What's resolved is death. And so there's a universal reign of death, and this is then undone, that life spreads to all. And so all are saved. If some are not, don't put that in this chapter, because that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, he's just giving us a universal explanation of the problem and the solution. You know, at the end of chapter 4, Christ's death and resurrection is a reversal beginning with Abraham. The chapter 4 ends, again, Hart's translation is very interesting here. In a sense, he just simplifies it. He says that Paul is making a very simple statement. He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and raised on account of our vindication. So the point is not two abstract realities, that it's not sin and grace, but it's very concrete sin and death is undone in Christ and life or the reign of righteousness. And of course, throughout here is the idea of king or kingdom, that there is a new kingdom introduced in Christ. And so again, if I could appeal to my own understanding, my own work as we're going through this, that if we understand, you know, from chapter one, where he's described sin as being a belief in a lie referencing Genesis. And so throughout all of this, Adam is important. And it may be that Adam, that even where Adam is not named, that Adam is there. And that's it true in chapter one. I think it's, you know, in chapter three, when he describes the nature of that deception and being connected to death. And then in chapter four, where he describes Abraham as reversing the death, what we might call death resistance or the orientation to death through his death acceptance, that if we think of sin as slavery to the fear of death, you know, what is the, what is the thing that controls us? He's going to describe it as the writer of Hebrew does, but he, Paul is also 
going to describe it as sin as the fear of death, the slavery to death. Christ, in a sense, relegates death and the law of sin and death to secondary things because that's the significance of the resurrection. And throughout this, that we need to recognize that revelation is necessary, that, that Christ is revealing something that is not otherwise known to us, but it's because the nature of a lie, a deception, uh, is that we're unconscious of it, or we don't have access to that. And so we need the revelation. But unfortunately, what happens if you mystify sin then you mystify the truth of Christ. My point here, the, the depth of the mystery of the truth of Christ displaces the unconscious structured as a lie. That is sin as a false mystery, of, as you have it in Augustine, as you have it in the Western tradition. Sin's not a mystery in that sense. Sin is open to us. We can spell it out, that it's a system. We can follow that system. And so one mystery gets replaced by another, a false mystery. By the real mystery, we can talk about the true mystery of the transcendence of Christ. That is, in fact, Paul's going to talk about this mystery in chapter 8. But that's a brief introduction. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.